Let's pray. As we dive into God's word this morning. Our holy God, we ask that you would speak to us in and through the preaching of your word. God, would you, by your spirit, make your word plain and clear? Would you establish your word that it might live in our hearts and bear fruit? Lord, would you help us build our house, our very life, upon your word, so that when the winds and the rain come, we don't collapse into rubble, but instead we stand. Would you grant that your word would be life to us, that it would be sweeter than honey, that it would be more precious than gold refined seven times in the furnace, that it would be garland around our necks, that it would be a crown upon our head, that this morning you would allow it to be bread to our hungry souls. And so would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds to understand? Would you give us hearts to believe? And then would we have the hands to worship you rightly? All of this we ask that you would do for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, whether we realize it or not, we each have a standard, a, a source of authority that we appeal to in order to help us make sense of the world in which we live. You see, we don't merely see the world around us. We see the world around us and then we interpret the world around us. And so if I were to ask you to tell me about the last time you went out to dinner, you wouldn't merely share the facts. You ordered food, they brought it to your table, you ate and you left. No, you would share the interpretation of those facts which would then lead to a judgment that you have rendered about your overall dining experience. Your interpretations would be based on some kind of standard that would help you make a judgment. Some of you, that standard is heavy on the price that you would pay. For others of you, it would be the quality of the food. For others, it would be the efficiency of the service. For others, it would be the right atmosphere, for some, it may even be your favorite chef's preferences. And this is the reason that you and I could go to the same restaurant, we could order the same food, have the same experience, and leave with different assessments. We have a different standard by which we're drawing from to assess our dining experience. Okay, truth be told, no harm, no foul. You go to your restaurant, I go to the same restaurant, you love it, I hate it. Does that really matter? No, it doesn't. To, in case I didn't want to leave you hanging the rest of the sermon, it doesn't matter. But what about more important matters? 
What about matters concerning family? What about matters concerning sexuality? What about matters concerning gender? Matters concerning marriage? Are these matters that really are merely based on whatever personal standard or source of authority that you have, and that's okay if it differs from the source of authority that I have? Or is there a standard that's universal to us all and that's good for us all? That we must interpret all of the world through that. Well, we believe that God's word, the Bible, is that standard. And it is what will help us rightly interpret our world and what would lead us then to make judgments informed by God's word. What about the topic of worship? Does God's word give us guidelines for how we are to worship? Or are you and I free to come up with whatever preferences that we have so long as our ideas have a, a note of sincerity in them? And I really do believe that many well-meaning Christians believe that God doesn't really care how he's worshipped. So long as people are being reached and we're being sincere in our preferences. But our passage this morning will remind us of what we said several weeks ago when we preached through Exodus chapter 25, uh, 25 through 27. That God does care that he's worshipped and that God does care how he's worshipped. And so in many ways, the six chapters that we're going to cover this morning is going to help reinforce that truth. And perhaps you just said, wait, did he say six chapters? I did, and I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. If you're new to the Bible, feel free to use one of the ones in front of you. Exodus will be the second book in the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus 35. The larger numbers, the smaller numbers will be the verses. We will be all over the place. Exodus chapter 35. So it's been roughly six months since God's people left Egypt. Three months it took them to get out, uh, to, to get to Sinai. And another three months they've spent at the base of the mount. And during this time, God's people have entered into covenant relationship with God. And central to this covenant relationship that God has with his people is that God desires to be with his people. Right? There's a lot of things we can say about God. One of the things we can never say about the God of the Christian faith is that he does not care to be with his people. In fact, he's moved heaven and earth to make that happen. Chapters 25 through 31, God has given instructions on the, the specifications for this tabernacle, this kind of portable temple that his people were to set up and God was going to graciously dwell, live among the people in and through the tabernacle. And so from chapters 25 through 31, specific instructions on what 
the measurements of the tabernacle to be, what the materials are to be, uh, what materials are used in order to construct the tabernacle, what's the furniture inside the tabernacle. I mean, intricate details. And then you get to chapters 32 through 34, and there's this idolatry incident. And so you would think to yourself, wait a minute, after several chapters of specific instructions on how to worship God, his people fail. And yet, in what shouldn't make sense to us even still, God lovingly reestablishes this relationship. He doesn't end it. He graciously extends love and forgiveness and mercy to his people. Well, then we hit our passage today, chapters 35 through the end of the book, verse 40. And so if 25 through 31 were the instructions for the tabernacle, then 35 through 40 is the construction of the tabernacle. It really is the same text, almost repeated verbatim, just in a different order. The work that was to be done, chapters 25 through 31, is now the work that is completed and is done, 35 through 40. And so like last week, we will have our sermon points stated in commands of application. So even as you try to think back on the sermon points, that hopefully they will serve to remind you of how you ought to respond. Beginning with the first point this morning. Point number one, rest as God intended. Rest as God intended. We see this in the first three verses of chapter 35. They weren't read this morning, and so I would invite you to follow along. Exodus 35, beginning verse 1. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days... Work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does not, or whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And so by beginning here, it's as if Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, helps to reset the story to where it was before the idolatry incident. If you were to go back to chapters 25 through 31, what you would find is chapters 25 through 31, verse 11, are the building instructions. And then Exodus 31, beginning in verse 12 through 17, is reminder of the Sabbath. Well, that takes us to Exodus 32, idolatry, beginning then Exodus 35, Verse 1, reminder of the Sabbath, leading then to instructions for the building. So that really is how this last section is set up. And maybe even more than that, the last words that God said in chapter 31 before the grievous sins are now the first words that God says when he picks back up after the sin. And if we step back, I think you can see an element of the grace of God yet again on display. Before 
the sin incident of the golden calf, God is saying, this is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to be. The first thing he says after the sin incident of the golden calf is this is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to be. It's as if God is declaring to his people, my promise still stands. Your sin does not reach farther than my grace. This is the sixth time that the Sabbath command is given in this book. It's meant to be a reminder. For us, it was meant to be a reminder for the original reader. The Sabbath was a visible sign between God and his people. God would provide for his people's needs as they rested. And as they rested, they were trusting that God would provide for their needs. The nations would know that this people belonged to their God because they trusted their God. And through that trust, they would display their commitment to their God, but they would also display their God's commitment to them. And so if we read, even again, towards the end of the book of Exodus, if we read these commands of keeping the Sabbath as some obligatory, dutiful weight that God was putting on his people to sort of enslave them yet again. Yeah, he set them free, but he really set them free to to put a different kind of chain on them. No, that's not what's happening. You're missing the grace in this command, being compassionate and gracious, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God is concerned about his people. He's concerned about their weary bodies and their tiring minds. Psalm 103 verse 14 would remind us that God is the God who knows our frame and he is mindful of our limitations, that we are of but dust. And so this command to rest was not to be a taxing, burdensome command. It was a command that was meant to lovingly serve and care for his people. He graciously built a day of rest into the lives of his people. And it would be, it, it would be understandable how they might think, okay, we have been tasked with doing the Lord's work. If we're going to do the Lord's work, then we have to do the Lord's work as quickly as we can. This thing ought to consume us. And God graciously just reminds them to say, just as important, if not more important, than the work that is to be done is the fellowship that is to be had with me. That's why we rest. God's people, this is the intention of rest from the beginning. So that his people would dwell and drink deeply and fellowship and commune with him and so be refreshed and renewed and satisfied yet again. Had God's people thrown themselves into this work to the degree that it would have kept them from communing with the Lord, they would have missed the whole point of the structure they were working for. 
And so while the Sabbath command has been fulfilled in Christ for Christians today, the need for us to renew our bodies and our minds and to commune with the Lord in unhurried ways, that remains. We said this in our sermon on Exodus chapter 31. The Sabbath wasn't given merely to avoid work, but it was a way to worship God through our rest. Worship through work gives way to worship through rest. And so the point was that there would be a ceasing from work and that there would be time filled with fellowship, communing with the Lord. Again, we said this a few weeks ago, Exodus 31. The point wasn't, are you breaking a sweat? But are you breaking a trust? I wonder this morning if you are living in light of the rest that's available to you as a part of God's people. We don't observe it as though it's a binding command because the rest that we need has been fulfilled. And it's available to us all of the time in and through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know that only in Christ can you rest from your work. And you say, no, no, Justin, all the time. I have the weekends off. I get to rest two days a week. I'm not talking about that rest. I'm talking about rest at the most foundational need. Resting from your work, thinking that somehow you have to be good enough in order to earn some type of standing before a God. The reward for resting in Christ is that you are made right with God. That you are loved by God, that you are helped by God, and that you have peace with God. And perhaps you're not a Christian and you have never stopped to consider, I know Christmas is coming up and I know it's the celebration of the birth of Jesus, but I've really never understood why he had to come. This is why he came. To provide a way for the crown of creation, human beings to find fellowship with God. Because of sin, humans were unable, totally, no ability to be in right relationship with God. And so Christ has come and he lives a sinless life. And if we are to trust in, if we trust in his sinless life, then there's an exchange that happens. Before the face of God, he credits Jesus' sinless life to my account and he erases the sin. In fact, it actually falls upon Jesus. And it falls upon Jesus through the death of Christ, this wrath-absorbing death where Jesus dies upon the cross as a substitute. A penalty that he did not deserve because of sins that he did not commit, he willingly takes on himself for all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in him. The only way for you to not have your sin counted against you on the last day in front of God the Father is through faith in the work of God the Son. 
And praise be to God in and through his resurrection from the dead, it was all verification that indeed God had accepted and received the sacrifice that Christ had had just completed. And the hope is that as Christ has now life and power even over death, so too is that the hope of every Christian that we too will be raised to spend forever with him. Jesus' work on the cross and in the empty tomb, it wasn't merely to ensure that you would have a peace that would end when you take your last breath. No, it was meant to live beyond the grave. Meant to secure your eternity with God himself. If you're not a Christian, what you most foundationally need in order to be made right with God is only available in and through the work of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that though you may not have walked in here believing that, you can walk out of here believing it. Turn from your sin. Stop treasuring the false hopes of this world as though they're going to earn you favor before this God. He's too holy. And whatever you're clinging to, it just isn't enough. Jesus says, turn from your sin and trust in him today. And Christian brother or sister, how easy is it to be absorbed in doing the Lord's work only to become wearied like Martha, that we neglect the good work that Mary did at resting at the feet of Jesus. And so if I could just encourage my Christian brothers and sisters, don't use your busyness in godly things as an excuse to not dwell and commune with your God. Rest is a gift. And so let's rest as God intended. Brings us to our second point. Participate in God's work. Participate in God's work. You heard Laura read the majority of this. We find this in chapter 35, verse 4 through 36, verse 7. And so the instructions have been given. And it's clear. Remember what? Exodus chapter 25, 2 tells us. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And so this is the Lord telling Moses, not only are there specific instructions for what's to be built in the tabernacle, but God has also ordained how that's going to be built. It's going to be built through workers that he fills with his spirit to carry out this kind of work, but also through contributions that his people make. His people are going to give, and that's going to provide what's needed for this elaborate work. And so, Exodus 35, verse 5, Moses does just this. He calls the people to take up an offering. And whoever is of willing heart, this is not a tax. This was a, here is an opportunity for us who have experienced God's grace to now turn around and let's give to God's work. And that's what we see happening. The people respond. They give jewelry. They give weave fabrics. They give animal hides. They give everything that is needed. And again, they're giving out of what the Lord had also provided even on their way out from Egypt as they plundered the Egyptians. 
Moses makes it clear the emphasis in this section is not on what all is given, but it really falls on how it's given. We see this in verse 21. We see this in verse 22. We see this in verse 26. We see this in verse 29. It's to be given with a heart of worship. This merely wasn't a box to be checked. This wasn't what John prayed earlier. That yes, we would do all of the right things and yet our hearts would be far away from even understanding and loving the God that we're doing it for. This should be ringing tones of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're familiar with the New Testament, it's as if... I think Paul is writing 2 Corinthians chapter 9, maybe even drawing back on this experience. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so if you're a Christian, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 ought to mark how you view what God has entrusted to you. It's not yours, it's his. And how you then allow that to flow to you and then to flow from you. And so when we read this in in Exodus chapter 35, this should be less of, okay, Moses, put out a call. And the call wasn't, hey, so check your heart, and if it's stirred, then give. And if it's not stirred, then don't worry about giving. No, it's as if this call was Moses saying, examine your heart and your treasure. And where you find idols, smash them. Kill them. And if it's not the right treasure, then get rid of the idol and return to the Lord and love him most. Be stirred in your affections for your God. And out of adoration, then give to your God. The description of this kind of giving concludes in verse 29. The Israelites, all the men and the women whose hearts moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, they brought a freewill offering to the Lord. And so that's what they do. They begin to give. And look down in Exodus chapter 36. Beginning in verse 3. They received from Moses all the contributions. And so now... Bezalel and Ohaliah, the ones whom the Lord had, had filled with his spirit so that they would know how to carry out this work, not just how they would carry out the work, but also how they would oversee others in carrying out this work. And so these guys, the, the project managers, come back to Moses and they say, praise be to God, people have given They continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which they were performing. And this is what they said, verse 5, to Moses. The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. And so then Moses has to stand up and say, stop giving. Stop giving. The generosity of the people had to be restrained. 
And I'm so thankful that we're a part of a generous church, and yet we've not seen anything like that. And I know this is what you're thinking. You're beginning to get a little bit nervous, and you're starting to clinch onto your wallet, and you're going, okay, here it comes. Here comes another passing of the plates. And I do think there are principles here to be learned about how we view giving. But when I think about what is happening in context, the New Testament would pick up on the main application not to be in how we give, but I believe for us to think about what's happening here in the Old Testament. God, through his people, is building a house for worship. And you get to the New Testament, God continues to build a house for worship, and he does it in and through his people. But the difference is, in the Old Testament, it's about what you can bring. In the New Testament, it's about who we are. We are the costly, beautiful, precious material out of which God is building his house. It's not just treasures and skills. It's, it's every bit of who we are. I mean, this is what Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 2. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has, all, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, as we think about how we facilitate and leverage our lives for the glory of this God, it's not just about writing checks. It's about giving all of who we are. And once the Lord has the heart, the checks, the giving, everything else follows. I wonder if this is how you view both opportunities for you to give. And I wonder if this is how you view your life. And the challenge to, to live in such a way is to where your life would be one brick among many, one stone among many that would showcase the glories of this gracious God who lives in relationship with his people. Our world today would say, man, you want to do something that's, you want to do something that's adventurous and jump out of a plane that works just fine. You want to do something that's adventurous? Like strap a, a big rubber band to your legs and jump off of a bridge and just bungee up and down. You, you want to do, and I think I just want to say, the New Testament says, is that, does that have a shot of adrenaline? The New Testament doesn't say that that has a shot of adrenaline. <laughs> do those types of things have a shot of adrenaline? They do. But the New Testament holds out something much more ordinary and yet so much more glorious. Like you want satisfaction in this life that runs deeper than your contentment with your nine to five? 
You want satisfaction in this life that runs deeper than you having to have the right relationship, the right season of life, the right living situation. If, if you want that kind of satisfaction, it's not found in just, let's come up with the next crazy adrenaline rush idea. No, it's found in living faithfully as one who's a part of this house that Jesus Christ is himself building. And that stone has the opportunity to display the glories of the only one who's worthy of every bit of worship that everyone on this planet who has ever lived and whoever will live could give. There is no better way to leverage your life than for his glory and his renown. And so participate. Participate in the work of God. Give yourself to the building up of others and you will find that you are giving yourself to the work that Christ through his spirit is doing. And so again, my non-Christian friends, the most pressing question for you today is not, all right, what are your gifts? How should you be serving? No, the most pressing question for you is are you trusting in this Savior who has given his life for the requirement of perfect righteousness and a spotless record of sin? You see, what God requires, he provides. What he required for this work to be done, he provided. He provided the skill. He provided the materials. He provided the place. I mean, he owns it all. He provided for it all. And what God requires, even for you and I today, perfect righteousness, no sin on our record. You could live 2,800 lifetimes and never achieve that. But in great mercy, what he's required, he's provided in and through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And for those of us who are believers, the good news of that gospel, it's not that, well, once you're in, that gospel is no longer good news. No, the good news of that gospel is that once Christ ascended, he then sent his spirit to dwell within. And everything God requires of you, it is now possible for you because of the spirit, the one doing his work, helping equip you to walk anew, convicting you to repent, and applying the grace that is found in and through the work of Christ. I mean, we read this and we step back and we just think, why in the world does this God love this way? And even particularly, Exodus chapter 35, why does he love this way to this people? I mean, just think how redemptive this moment would have been. They are bringing everything and they're not only bringing everything, they have supplied more than they need. Just think where they were just 
two chapters, three chapters ago. They had given their energy, they had given their gold in order to participate in shameful idolatry. And yet now God was employing them to build a beautiful house for him. What a mercifully kind God. I love that all of this happens on the other side of that incident because it gives me so much hope. Taste that the Lord is good and yet find myself walking and failing and forgetting. And when I deserve to just, it's over. That's not how he responds. And what happens when we taste that mercy and forgiveness? We really say, whatever we have, however we can be used, it's all yours. Like, just take and use as you please. And so, friends, don't waste your life on living for something as small as you. Don't waste your life on living for something as small as your agenda. No, beg the Lord to expand your capacities to live for the rewarding joy and the privilege that is found in Christ alone. Lastly, third point, trust in God's plan. Trust in God's plan. We see this from chapter 36, verse 8, all the way to chapter 40, verse 33. We're not going to read that section. That section virtually mirrors the passages that we studied in more detail in Exodus 25 through 31. It's almost copy and paste in a slightly different order. You see, back in 25 through 31, God had given Moses the blueprint for the project. And here in 36 through 43, we now not we're not looking at the architect's blueprint. We're actually looking at the construction manager's punch list. I mean, he's going through saying, and they did this just as the Lord commanded. And they did this just as the Lord commanded. I would encourage you, this would be an easy section to just sort of throw away, skip over, as we as a church have walked through this book, to not even read. I would encourage you, find time today to read this. Find time this week to read this. And even as you read it, I would also encourage you to just listen to the refrain, just as the Lord commanded. Just as the Lord commanded. We asked a question at the beginning of the sermon. Does God really care how he's worshiped? I believe the book of Exodus is stressing is emphasizing the truth that God does indeed care. And so I'm, I, I step away from this section. I just think, why the repetition? Hey, if you think about it, we have two chapters in the Bible that detail God creating the heavens and the earth. And we have 13 chapters about the instructions 
and the completion of the tabernacle. I'm just going, I get, I would think that would be the other way around. Like, are we missing something? Well, it's helpful for us to know a lot of those 13 chapters are repetition. And repetition in the Bible reveals emphasis. Repetition in the Bible reveals emphasis. Emphasis is that all that God has said is what should be done. Just as the Lord commanded. That phrase, just as the Lord commanded, it's repeated multiple times throughout this section. Seven times alone in chapter 39, seven times in chapter 40, thinking of the garments, thinking of the tabernacle, three times just the work of the whole. You see, many people in our day, modern folks are bored by uh, by repetition. But the Bible holds our attention through repetition. You read this section and you walk away and there's not one doubt in your mind. I wonder if they did this the way the Lord commanded. Everything was done just as the Lord commanded. I mean, that's what we read even in 39. Exodus 39, verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Verse 43, and Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it. Just as the Lord had commanded, this they had done. So Moses blessed them. I don't have time to unpack it, but even commentators helped, helped me this week as kind of looking at the conclusion of this, seeing that everything was done just as he commanded. The work was completed. Blessing was given. And just a connection between the completion here of the tabernacle and even the ending of the days of creation. The work was completed and God blessed The work is completed and God blessed. It's as if Moses is writing to say, God has graciously redone a new work of creation among his people. I believe it would be surprising for many people today to admit to or even see and believe that the way in which God wants to be approached and worship, that that is not self-evident. That's not intuitive. Said another way, I believe it would surprise many people to think that humans don't know best the ways in which God desires to be rightly worshiped. But do you know who does know best? God. God knows exactly how he desires to be worshipped and shall be worshipped. Apart from God speaking and revealing to us in and through his word how to approach him and worship him, we wouldn't know. 
And so God has revealed that, him, that to us. It's one of the reasons why we treasure his word because it makes clear who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. We find him most securely in his word. And thus we as a church, we value this word. We value it. It informs everything about our meetings together. It's why we read the word throughout our gatherings. It's why we pray the word. It's why we sing the word. It's why we preach the word. It's why we observe the ordinances to give sight to the word. Throughout church history, this idea of being guided by God's word as to what we are to do in worship has been called the regulative principle. This idea that God's word sets the standard. I'm helped by what Mark Dever says. He says, many churches in effort to get as many people in as possible will do whatever necessary. Even if those steps take them outside of the confines of what God has said about worshiping him in and through his word. And Dever says this about his church in Washington, D.C. And I, the sentiment resonates with, with our elders for covenant life. He says, we don't go for novelty. We try as best as we can to stay faithful to the word of God. And we understand in doing that, that that may bore those who are nominally Christian. Deborah says, if you're interested in novelty, then you may come here and you may try it, but then I assume you will leave. And he says, but we're aiming to be serious about who God is and what God has said. We exist for God. We exist for his people. And we exist to be a light to those who yet do not believe and trust. I pray God would protect this church from existing for nominally Christian people. That we would give ourselves to wholehearted, Serious joy, worshiping God as he commanded. And so whether it looks like it or not, I just want to remind you, God's plans, trusting in his plans, everything is on schedule. Unlike any construction project that you've ever been a part of, Everything that God does is on schedule. And his plans are not perfect because you and I are getting it right. His plans are perfect because Jesus Christ is faithful to do the work that God has given him. Jesus is the master builder of your life if you belong to him. Jesus is the master builder of this church. I and the elders, we're not the master builders of Covenant Life Church. Jesus Christ is. That's why we then give ourselves to everything that he has commanded. And so friends, you and I can trust his plans, but don't, let's not just be a people who say, yeah, we trust his plans. Let's be a people who trust and follow his plans. 
Like let's live in such a way as to where when the world looks in on our lives, both corporately and individually, they would say, why in the world do you do that? And we would say, because we believe and trust in God's plans. His plans are the rule of our lives. And he's revealed his plans in and through the word. And so more sure than anything that the Lord has ever said to you audibly in still small voice, more sure than that is what he has spoken here. And so we stake our lives on this, believing that this is the standard, this is the source of authority that really informs everything about who we are as his people. And sometimes you and I can think that we know better or we can be more efficient or we can be more relevant or we can be, we can be more practical as though some, somehow God's word has become outdated. I just want to remind you, Christian, you don't have the freedom to update God's word. It doesn't need it. God decides how he ought to be worshiped. He decides how you should live. He decides how this church should be ordered. And that shouldn't threaten our autonomy. No, that should encourage our worship. But don't just trust his plan and don't just follow his plan. Lastly, just delight in it. Delight in his plan. God's plan leads to blessing. Obeying God and joyfully submitting to him doesn't lead to joyless living. No, when you give your heart and your life and your energies and your affections and your efforts, when you give that to your idols, that leads to joyless living. And you may think that for a moment there's much joy to be had, but I promise you that fount will run dry soon enough. God cares that he's worshiped properly. And, and what joy would it be for us to do all that he has commanded? And so just consider the grace of God that I, I pray would just woo us all into the worship of this one true deserving God. The golden calf incident. Some people would say, yeah, so it's clear that some uh, editor got, got a, a hold of this story and the book of Exodus. And really, I mean, because you go from 31 talking about the Sabbath to 35 talking about the Sabbath and there's this incident. And so someone just sort of put this incident in here and it doesn't belong here. And I would just say, no, I think it belongs there. And I think it belongs there because it highlights who God is and just how gracious he is. It's placed right between the plans that were given and the obedience to carry them out. And it shows that God will have a people regardless of their sins. Why in the world would God do this? Why did he pick them? It must have been because they were so virtuous. No, Deuteronomy 7 would remind us, you are, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so we're going, why? Why did they get chosen among everybody else? Verse seven, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay, it wasn't because you were mighty in number. Verse eight, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, 
the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why were they chosen? Not because of attributes that they brought to the table, but because of the attributes of God. Because of his grace, because of his mercy, he continues to make a people for himself. His grace makes certain that there will be a people for him. And when sin went down in Exodus 32 through 34, he didn't wipe them out. And we should have known this is how he was going to act. Because it didn't end in the garden when Adam and Eve failed. And praise be to God, it didn't end when you and I failed even this weekend or this morning. Our standing with him is secure because he holds his people fast. And friends, because of that, we can trust his plans. And those who are a part of his people, we remember this regularly as we observe this meal that's before us. Do you remember Moses coming down from the mountain? And he catches Aaron in the midst of the idolatry. And then you get to Exodus chapter 39. And Aaron is putting on the priestly garments. Like I wonder what Aaron must have felt. Like a level of shame a level of humiliation, an overwhelming sense of contrition, of being loved, of being forgiven, a burning sense of gratitude. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I think it's with that posture of heart that we should approach this table. Not bogged down with shame and guilt, but a right sense of humility. I don't deserve this. And yet I can rejoice. Two things here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. Like, I pray that we feel that as these elements are passed this morning. And it shouldn't be that we look within so much that when we take these elements that we then just are bogged down in despair and we feel like I really shouldn't even be taking this. No, when you look within, don't stay there. As one theologian would say, for every look to yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. Be reminded of what it is that we're feasting on. These symbols of a body that was broken and blood that was shed in order to make us right with this unfathomable God. And so here at Covenant Life, the Lord's Supper is open. It's open to baptized believers who are 
members in good standing of a church that preaches the gospel that you heard here, that the only way you can be made right with God is by turning from your sin and trusting in the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Baptized believer, another church has affirmed that you indeed do belong to the Lord best they can tell. You're in good standing in a church that preaches that gospel. But you're also walking in reconciliation with others. Like that you wouldn't be, yes, I'm going to come here and do this as though everything is right in my heart with God's people. No, that there would be integrity. That we would be in right relationship with others because that does affect our experience of right relationship with him. And lastly, you're walking in repentance of sin. That in light of this, that there's no sin that you would say, I hold this more dearly than the work of my Savior. And so if that's you this morning, as the elements are passed, we'd invite you to partake. Take them. Hold them until everyone has received the elements, and then we will observe the supper together. And if you're not a Christian, I would just say there's no shame in allowing those elements to go by you. And in fact, I would tell you, or if you're a Christian who hasn't been obedient to the point of baptism or having another church affirm your profession of faith, there's no, there's no shit. This isn't like, ah, oh, we're looking around to see who doesn't take. No, our, our heart's longing for you is that you would know the joy of being able to participate in this. And so I would just ask you to wrestle with the question, what keeps you from walking in obedience? And talk to someone. It would be our joy to talk with you. We would love to see you participate in this meal that's meant to strengthen our faith. And so I'll pray. The elements will be passed, and then we'll observe the supper. Our gracious God, you are kind. You're loving. You're gentle. You're merciful. You're full of forgiveness. And that those good attributes do not compromise the good attributes of your justice and your wrath your holiness, your standard of perfection. And so I pray that you would help us. Even now as we observe the supper, would you allow us to look within? Would we throw off everything that so easily entangles and ensnares us? And may we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And may this give us joy today, we pray. In his name, amen.